up this week on Breaking Badness. Today we discuss time to spill the Conti. Next up, attackers kick up a DDoS, a new technique that's been used to amplify DDoS attacks. And finally, our fun game, Two Truths and a Lie. With that, Breaking Badness is next. Welcome to Breaking Badness, episode number 113, recorded on March 7th, 2022. I'm your co-host, Kelsey. A rolling stone gathers on DDoS, LaBelle. With me, co-host him, middle box champion of the world, Helming. And last but not least, Taylor, these chats need more cats, Wilkes Pierce. How, how are you two doing today? Hey, how's it going? Doing all right. Yeah. I mean, considering the crazy state of the world, can't complain. Yes. Some healthy perspective (laughs) in many ways. And we're going to be continuing that conversation here this week. In fact, uh, there are just two bullet points I want to frame here at the onset of our conversation. Last week really highlighted how quickly news is coming in. That asterisk continues to hit episode 113. We're going to talk more about Conti because information is coming in quickly, but just something that um, that we thought was worth surfacing as kind of a bullet point here at the beginning is, according to Nexta, which is the largest Eastern European media outlet, um, Russian began active preparations for disconnection from the global internet. So it seems like no later than March 11th, all servers and domains um, have to be transferred to the Russian zone. So there's some some fascinating stuff that's happening in that that region. <laughs> yeah, and a lot could be different by the time folks, you know, are actually listening to this. Yeah, but yeah, yeah it certainly looks like they want to pull uh, at least anything serving .ru stuff internal to Russia uh, for an extra level of control over access to and from it, both internal and external. Looks like. Interesting. So just before popping onto this uh, recording of this episode, uh, I saw a tweet out from Cloudflare actually stating too that they would not turn off the internet interwebs access and stop essentially protecting whoever's hosted on Cloudflare in Russia from DDoS attacks. And, and their point was really it's it's a time that you need internet more than more than ever. So it'd be fascinating to see how all the different um, companies respond because I think that's happening quite a bit this week, whether it's B2C organizations like uh, Nike is an example, or um, even in the security or the infrastructure space. So the final thing I'll note here is that in case this is useful to anybody listening in, uh, we, we try not to talk about anything vendor related on the podcast, but um, uh, Domain Tools, uh, who produces this podcast, is releasing a new free feed, basically, of newly observed or registered Ukraine-related domain names. So it's looking specifically at terms, including Ukraine or Ukrainian, and that gets updated daily. You can find it on the website, specifically on our blog, and there's a link out there that is updated, as I mentioned, on a daily basis. So our hope is that will be useful for defenders. So don't hesitate to click through and use that to your advantage. For a little info on the provenance there, I know know, we don't toot the domain tools horn, but we pick up 150 to 400,000 domains every day and we can leverage that and find all of the things that look like they are targeting 
um, you know, particular keywords and phrases there. So uh, lots of very fresh, fresh data there to get every day. Yeah, this is a perfect example of the pattern that we call domain blooms. Um, you know, we did a report on it last year and we the biggest bloom I think that we've ever studied was around COVID. But um, this there's no doubt that the uh, domains that have Ukraine or some variation of Ukraine in the domain name are exhibiting a bloom pattern. So we'll just see when, you know, at some point in the future, the number of new domains each day that contain those terms or variants of them will drop down to some new baseline. Um, but it's uh, but it's still in the bloom part right now. Great point there, Tim, as well as, as your points to Taylor. Uh, perfect. So with with those little snacks of information, let's say, let's pop into our normal format. So we've got two articles today to talk about. One in the first here is time to spill the Conti. So two weeks ago in an unprecedented move, a Ukrainian researcher leaked nearly two years of internal chat logs from Conti. So we discussed this briefly last week. It was one of many topics under the, the Ukrainian umbrella, if you will. But some folks have provided some interesting insights, interpretations, et cetera, from these logs. Uh, I know Krebs specifically, Brian Krebs, um, <laughs> so many good Krebs out there. But uh, Brian Krebs had two pieces that were really digging into these chats. And so, Taylor, just for anybody who's not familiar, and again, there's so much noise right now. Yeah. Um, who who is Conti? What is Conti? We'll start there. <laughs> yeah, well, we're not going to translate it, but uh, it's the name of a ransomware group. Uh, you know, kind of came around in late 2019. Uh, you know, operating out of Eastern Europe, and, and seems to be primarily a lot of Russian folks uh, involved with the operations there. Uh, you know, they may or may not be like affiliated with the it was Ryuk Ryuk. Uh, gang as well. There's a lot of tool overlap between the two, and, and a lot of folks thought that perhaps uh, you know Conti was a rebrand of that. Um, you know the, the the chat leaks get into that a little bit, and we'll talk about that. But um, yeah, you know they've been around for a while. They're um, really aggressive and fast. So they're you know you'll see uh, a security article. It's like hey, they went from you know a phishing email, the Cobalt Strike, to you know encrypting an entire company's worth of data in you know. 24 hours or something ridiculous like that, right? So uh, they targeted a lot of healthcare systems in the past. They locked up uh, the Irish healthcare system, if you recall that, um, not too long ago. And so, yeah, they're pretty notorious and uh, so far fairly successful ransomware group. Um, you know, that has been an adversary for a good couple of years now. Given how long they've been around um, and all of the other things that are happening in the world right now. Why are so many folks so very intrigued and interested in these chat logs? Yeah. So, it, you know, it's not often that we get this much of an inside look on things. And the reasoning here is directly related to the conflict in, in Ukraine. So uh, when the operations kicked off for the, when the Russians invaded, uh, the the ransomware game Conti posted a message on their site in support of the war, saying that hey they'll you know lay west to any Western uh, you know, folks that want to get in the way or, or work against Russian interests. So they kind of laid their affiliations bare there uh, out for the world to see. And then you know it seems that maybe internal to that group or folks who are researching that group 
uh, out of, uh, as long as it was a security, a security researcher in Ukraine, decided to start publishing chat logs, uh, you know, just dumping data on the 20, I want to say 27th of February, and then kept going through the, up to March 2nd. Thank you, Taylor. And I'm just curious, what, I just want to highlight, there's so much to thumb through with these mm-hmm. chats. So I'm just going to ask you a few questions here, and then I'm going to ask you at the end what, what you find interesting or you're most curious about, because this is just... I mean, this is built exactly like an enterprise organization, right? There's a lot of things at play here. There's office politics, there's confusion and miscommunications, and everybody has unique and specialized jobs, and there's structure. So I think it's, I'd just be curious to start maybe with how large is the Conti organization? What does that organizational structure look like? And how Mm -hmm. does this align with the way that they apply their tools, tactics, and procedures that you were mentioning at the, the beginning of this topic, this discussion. Yeah, it's a fascinating look, and we could spend a couple episodes even look at it. I'll try and condense everything down. Uh, yeah, so interesting, like the, the, the group themselves seems around like 60 to 100 or so folks. Um, it's a little nebulous because there's affiliates that also kind of work in this space as well. So there may be folks who are associated with Conti, but may not be kind of directly, um, you know, on the payroll for extended periods of time. But yeah, there does appear to be a a top-down hierarchical structure where they have folks who are running testing constantly, who are, you know, rebuilding um, their malware to go up against, uh, like, and specifically they called out like Windows Defender, uh, you know, updating their their signature stuff as a look before every four hours. So they've, you know, when they were hiring folks to say, hey, you have to kind of be up at this time in Moscow to kind of change things around so that we can get around the new detection stuff, um, you know, from the internal business workings to like, hey, we only, really only want to target uh, you know, organizations that have a hundred million dollars in revenue and beyond. So like, you know, interesting that they um, kind of have a target market, as it were, uh, that, that they're going after. Um, yeah, there's just a ton of, of interesting tidbits in there. Yeah, they've got OKRs and everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does seem to be there's middle management, there's, you know, they've got their weekly check-ins. and uh, <laughs> Yeah, what, is, um, what does the ENPS look like um, at Conti? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, for a customer side? <laughs> oh, run for, oh, no, boy. for employees. Any, anybody um, I don't seen want... their uh, glass door recently? Oh, gosh. On there. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's on you, it might, it might be gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, it seems pretty apparent just reading through these chats that they're faced with similar challenges to, to legitimate organizations, which is, it's not new when we're talking about these as a service crime rings, um, but they're making decisions about when to outsource or manage in house. And it sounds like they have a relatively strict budgets, uh, relatively strict budget and a structured approach to meeting their cybercrime objectives. So what what more can you share on that, specifically on that? Yeah, structure I think it would also, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention their involvement with stuff like TrickBot and Emotet and things like that um, as well. But uh, yeah, like, you know, chats around forgetting to pay for domains are particularly funny and of interest too. Uh, you know, us here at Domain Tools, um, you know, the budgeting they spend for things on virtual private servers, the infrastructure, um, you know, that they're trying to stand up is all stuff that, that we try to track out in the wild. So it's really interesting to see it from the inside as well. Um, you know, they're also purchasing 
antivirus tooling um, for checking against their, uh, you know, their malware, uh, which is kind of interesting. You know, the, they've, they've got budgets for that. They were, you know, buying valid licenses under false pretenses to, to kind of test their own stuff against. Hmm. Man, and what, just Taylor, I'm curious what you found interesting about these chat logs uh, you know for a- everything on some level just because it is a peek into a world um you know th- that uh, we don't have a lot of access and visibility to on this side but you know a few things that kind of struck stuck out to me is really really interesting um one you know the, as i mentioned this they, they you know they were purchasing edrs and things but they also bought cobalt strike they spent about 60 grand um to get a hold of, of legit cobalt strike licensing you know through a third party uh they have connections into the journalist side of things, it would appear, right? Again, like we're, we're, we're reading this from the chat logs, right? So there's a giant grains of salt that need to be taken <laughs> with, uh, you know, these types of things. But, you know, they mentioned working with a journalist who can help put pressure on an organization that is not willing to pay uh, around a data leak. So the, for the tune of just 5% of the payout, so meaning there is an actual kind of straight up quid pro quo Crow for uh, a journalist and this ransomware gang, which is really interesting. Um, you know, they're also, you know, close closely related to the negotiators for this as well. So, you know, companies will hire negotiators to work with them, and it does appear that they have, you know, look to be too friendly relationship. <laughs> if I'm a victim and, and I and I knew about it, I'd probably be pretty mad. Um, you know, so lots of interesting stuff there. Yeah, there should be. Uh, terminology, you know, when you're taking something with a grain of salt so much so that you have blood, you should expect high blood pressure kind of thing. Yeah. It sounds like that's the case here with, um, well, with melt some frosty logs. ice walks. Or, mm, uh, yeah, walks good or for the winter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what does all of this mean for defenders? You know, I think that that's going to, it's going to, the, the kind of fallout from this and how we apply this to defensive depth and, um, you know, <laughs> We'll, we'll, we'll see over the coming months here. I think that from the like EDR standpoint, right? If you're uh, your folks running Cobalt Strike today, or you know, you, you want to be looking into the licensing that folks are buying, or like the um, you know the all the different EDRs, you might want to check where stuff is calling home from. Um, yeah, you know, it's just again, I don't. This may not slow them down a whole heck of a lot, but uh, you know, at least gives us a window behind the scenes into how they go about their business and we you know not for nothing we did get a lot of iocs lots you know lots of email addresses domains i was i've been running some investigations on on those inside of our tooling uh, and finding some you know lots of stuff that we knew was bad but also stuff hey we might not have known that was bad um and given a 20-year historical database we may find some interesting things tied to email addresses uh, i saw some noise in the release uh what looked like maybe potentially compromised email addresses or like abuse at um you know service provider uh name here.com email addresses which we got to clean out a little bit but you know there, there's a lot of stuff to work with uh in terms of the osint side of things and, and you know getting a, a look at what they've been up to thanks taylor for digging into all of that it sounds like you had a good time doing it um with with all this to say, let's go ahead and rate this. And we use a hoodie rating here at Breaking Badness, which is from zero to ten. Ten is very very bad. Zero is pretty much neutral. And we are playing off the cliche of hackers in hoodies. How many, essentially, how many defenders in hoodies will it take to resolve or remediate the issue? Um, and then on the flip side of that, we have goodies, which are like warm 
delicious <laughs> cookies. They're they're a good thing. And so this is this is kind of a unique one. I'm curious, Tim, we'll start with you with how you would rate this on those scales. Yeah, I think I think I'm like sitting at zero, like just on the neutral part, right in the middle of the seesaw. Because um I don't think we learned anything from these internal documents that necessarily uh, tells us either that Conti is more to be feared than we had ever thought before or less to be feared than we thought before. Um, and as Taylor pointed out, like there's not there's not a blueprint here for defenders to just uh, sort of resolve any potential future Conti related problems. So really, I think it's interesting, but from a goodie or hoodie perspective, I see things as pretty neutral. So put me put me right at a big old goose egg. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Tim. And Taylor, how do you feel about that rating? You know, I'm going to go on the goodie side and not not a lot, right? Because uh, as you mentioned, it's not like, hey, we could, we have the keys in the kingdom or a bunch of decryptors here or anything like that, um, w- which will be interesting. And look, this is an evolving story. So uh, for the listeners, you know, it, you know, we're recording this uh, on one date and it'll come out and there may be stuff that happens in between here or there. Um I'll go a couple of goodies. I, I think that it is, you know, the the coziness on the uh, negotiator side, the journalism thing, looking, uh, you know, at the different tooling that they're purchasing. Like that's that, that stuff's helpful. Um, and, and then, you know, again, yes, a dump of IOCs is a temporary help, um, right? Like the, you're going to be playing whack-a-mole with this stuff, but you know, it allows us to explore these patterns uh, within registration and, and maybe get a little bit smarter about where they're going next. Excellent. You know, you're right. Put me down for one goodie. Have we ever done this before? Have we revised the <gasps> score after the other person? I Taylor makes a good case there, but I'm still I'm still a little more stingy than he is. I'm only going to say one. You know what? I don't think we are in a world where we allow people to get more information and make more informed decisions. <laughs> yeah, not right. Gotta... Clearly, we're not in that world. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind, I'll edit it. We'll, we'll be the change we want to see in the world. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks for that analysis, Taylor. And let's kick over to our second article, which is attackers kick up a DDoS. So researchers from security vendor Akamai published a report this past week highlighting a new technique to amplify DDoS attacks. So Tim, if people are lucky enough not to know what DDoS is. This reminds me, there's a great Taylor Tomlinson comedy show. And she says, you know what? If you don't know what serotonin is, you have enough of it. Um, And (laughs) I would say that (laughs) this kind of relates to DDoS. If you don't know what DDoS is, good for you. That's probably, hopefully a good thing and not uh, not negligence. So what what is a DDoS attack? How do these work, Tim? Sure, yeah. It's a distributed denial of service attack. And once upon a time, way back, I mean, we're talking, I don't know, before Barney, maybe, I don't know, it was quite a while back, <laughs> there was possible to have a denial of service attack against computing resources that was not distributed. You could sort of almost do it one-to-one. Um, but in the modern world, uh, anytime you're going to actually bring some resource offline that's a popular, you know, well, well-resourced well site on the internet, for example, 
Um, you've got to have a huge amount of bandwidth to do that, to flood the pipe. And in order to do that, you have to recruit zombie machines, typically thousands of them from around the world, to carry out that distributed uh, attack rather than coming from one concentrated source. I'd like to look at the world that way. Post and, uh, you know, pre-Barney and, and post-Barney. Um, I think that's... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying it's to think, kind of you know, what was now. what did the world look like? Well, you know, <laughs> I, I guess I also could have said back in the days when you uh, were still receiving AOL discs in cereal boxes. Uh, what do we use as frisbees anymore? You know, <laughs> your, mom, your mom might DDoS you by picking up the phone while you're on. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the first DDoS. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess it was distributed if multiple just, family members uh, pick could up pick extensions up the at the yeah. same time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So thanks, thanks for that reminder, Tim, um, and that that history lesson there. Now, Akamai, who's that security vendor I mentioned earlier, has seen a new way for threat actors to boost the effectiveness of their DDoS attacks using this one weird trick. <laughs> and it sounds like this technique, which is known as TCP middle box reflection, has discussed a theory or was discussed as a series six months ago. But unfortunately, they just detected it for the first time in the wild. So, Tim, what is TCP middle box reflection? How does it work? And what level does that make you as a Scientologist? Because that sounds a little bit like a, a, a level in Scientology to me. <laughs> it, it does kind of, but only upon serious reflection can you make it to that level. <laughs> so, okay, so... You know, middle box was a new term to me when this story came out a few days ago. I hadn't seen the earlier story about the um, the theoretical uh, aspect of this. But anyway, I saw these stories about this going around a few days ago and thought middle box. Well, I can probably sort of guess what they're talking about, but it's not a term of art that I've heard a whole lot. Um, so I'm guessing other people listening to the show may be in the same position there. So a middle box is something like a firewall or a content filter something like that that's designed to accomplish various tasks. But um, in particular, uh, an example that was given in some of these uh, articles about this was just country scale content filtering, web filtering. Um, but anyway, these things are configured so that they will uh, reply to different kinds of connection conditions with different kinds of responses in order to permit some traffic and deny some traffic and so forth. And what these researchers found was that they could craft uh, certain kinds of SIN packets that would trigger an unexpected reply from the middle box that turned out to be awfully helpful from uh, an attacker's point of view. And, and so the issue here is that the um, these middle boxes that are affected, that are susceptible to this kind of abuse, they don't take TCP stream states into account when they're attempting to enforce their content filtering policies. And so they will respond to out-of-state TCP packets, and um, which does not mean these are packets that, you know, just have a different license plate on their car, uh, out-of-state in this case, meaning that it does not conform to the particular connection state that it's supposed to be in for that part of the handshake. And um, what, uh, what is notable here is that you can trigger the middle box to send a whole lot more packets back than what you sent to it. And if you're spoofing the IP address of your intended victim, so I wanna bring down you know, foobar.com, so I spoof the IP of foobar.com, 
and then bounce these SIN packets off of one of these affected middle boxes, that traffic is going to go back to foobar.com, the IP that I spoofed. And, um, and they're the real, uh, the real victim in this case. Anyway, they can get um, a lot more reply packets out of that middle box than what they actually had to send to initiate that stream. Huh. Thanks for describing that, Tim. And I'm glad I'm not alone and not knowing what the heck a middle box was before this article came out. It turns out middle boxes are all around us. We just don't <laughs> see them. <laughs> Middle boxes, the atoms of boxes. Um, <laughs> so, Tim, why is this then such an effective technique when it comes to DDoS? It's really because of the amplification factor. Um, you know, with a DDoS, uh, like I mentioned earlier, in order to get that volume of traffic that's high enough to flood today's uh, pipes, which have a lot of capacity, um, you had to recruit a lot of uh, zombie machines that became part of the botnet that would deliver that DDoS. With this level of amplification, you need way fewer resources in order to accomplish the same level of, uh, of denial. Or if you have the same size of botnet, then you can do massively more with that botnet than you could with other techniques. So they, um, they were able to test and verify amplification of over 6,000%. So talk about a return on investment. So they can create a lot of disruption with way lower resources than what they would have had uh, using earlier techniques. You know what? I feel like DDoS prevention vendors should give out like earplugs for, you know, de-amplification as, as oh, a giveaway. You know, you know, that would be a good giveaway on noisy, crowded convention floors. Yeah. Expo floors. That's Very right. Very loud in those places. It is. It is. <laughs> yeah, I would take them. I'd look, it's it's better than a, a, another fidget spinner. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. I said that as someone who's given fidget spinners to folks. And I look, they're great. I love them. They light up. They spin around. <laughs> Pretty lights. <laughs> you got one, you've seen one, you, you've seen them all. <laughs> you spun one yeah. fidget spinner, you've spun them all. <laughs> yeah, yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm curious, Tim, I mean, this is the first time, again, they had mentioned at the beginning that this would had been kind of a theoretical discussion. This is the first time we're seeing this in a wild but is it typical in general to see actors abuse UDP reflection vectors? Yeah. Um, and when it comes to these amplification kinds of techniques that we've seen over time, they have almost all been UDP um, prior. So, and if you look at the, you know, the hall of fame or the hall of shame of uh, the DDoS methods that have been setting various records over the last few years, you know, you see the, the NTP ones and the RIP V1 ones, and then the Memcache D1 more recently, um, these UDP amplification techniques. So um, yeah, this one is a little different in uh, abusing TCP rather than UDP, but clearly we can see why it's um, unfortunately at risk of becoming pretty popular. In this hall of shame, I think there should be a a section called Rip V1, Believe It or Not. Oh. Um, that we could include. That's, yeah, I see it. <laughs> I you got to make it happen. <laughs> All right, it's on. 
our security museum is, needs to come up. There's an NFT museum now in Seattle, so now we need to create a security one that can go next to the Living Computers uh, Museum from the Paul I'm Allen sorry, Institute. An NFT museum? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how I feel. Like, uh, what? I wonder what forms of payment they accept. Right click, save as. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tim, when did this attack? take place this this amplification this reflection and middle boxes when did that go down yeah so akamai has been observing these over the last few uh weeks um or a couple of weeks or so so we would say late february into early march of 2022 for those listening in sometime in the future um and by the way it's uh as you you mentioned akamai right up at the top, I wanted to, to say that uh, Akamai does have security, a uh, security team and security functions. But you know what the world knows them for probably the most is as a, a CDN, a content delivery network. And so they are in a um, kind of a unique position with a lot of visibility into, you know, vast volumes of network traffic going um, in various directions. And so that puts them in a good spot to observe this kind of activity. Anyway, they've seen multiple campaigns uh, that with pretty broad victimology, banking, travel, gaming, media, uh, web hosting, uh, popular destinations, in other words, more or less. Um, and they also said that you know what they're seeing right now is fairly small compared to other um, attack vectors, but the overwhelming assumption seems to be an implication is that, well, this is just a warm-up. This is just some practice that you're seeing going on right now. And so they, when they started seeing these things a couple of weeks ago, the first ones they saw were only around 50 megs. Um, but then shortly after that, they saw uh, tests going as high as 11 gigs. So really we're just watching this actor kind of take this thing out for a little bit of a test drive, um, but we're not seeing the, the large scale attacks that I think are entirely possible or probable. Well said, Tim. And just to, to close this topic, uh, and you alluded to this a little bit earlier, how concerned should defenders be about this technique and what can they do to try to mitigate the risk? Yeah. So there are there are mitigations um, that are definitely available. Um, and I'll talk about a couple of them in a second. Um, one of the frustrating things with this story to me is I at least have not seen anybody publish a list of which middle boxes have TCP implementations that make them susceptible to this abuse. I won't necessarily, re I, I'm not using the term vulnerable because in a lot of cases, I think these are simply something that can be configured. Um, you can configure how it will handle certain kinds of packets down in the low level configuration of the TCP stack. And so, um, but it would be very handy to see a list of middle boxes known to be exhibiting this behavior so that if you have one of those, you can um, put some, uh, some mitigations in place. But basically, um, there are rules that you can set up that say to do things like uh, drop SIN packets that have uh, uh, longer payloads than, than zero, basically, or uh, certainly you could configure some very low threshold and don't reply, just silently drop. This is one of the biggest things, actually. Uh, if you're trying to uh, 
create, make a, a device as hardened to the outside world as possible, one of the things you want to do is generally just to silently drop abuse connections rather than send any kind of reset or send some kind of uh, other packet back. And you can also, so you can create rules that will um, drop any SYN packets that have lengths greater than a certain amount and so forth. Um, you can use Snort or other signature type of tools to see um, some patterns that you can can pick up from this kind of behavior. So there's a, there's a number of uh, different kinds of mitigations. Um, in general, I think, you know, personally, if I'm configuring a box like that, I just want it to overwhelmingly silent drop anything that isn't known to be good. Another um, piece of feedback, because I know all the vendors that we cover here are listening to Breaking Badness, of course. Um, for anybody associated with SIN packets, can you please create some exhibit called SIN City? Um, that would be greatly mm. appreciated. Hey, when I'm in SIN City, I keep my packets in my pockets. Just be, yeah, be careful. Don't drop those. <laughs> <laughs> Right. What happens in Sin City doesn't always stay in Sin City. That's the thing, especially when we're talking about TCP now. <laughs> Thank you, Tim, for, for going into so much depth here on this particular report that uh, Akamai published and researched. Taylor, with all this said, how would you rate this from a hoodie perspective, this new technique? You know, it's... It's interesting. It has you know not, not having seen it in use, it's tough to like give it a big old hoodie rating. Um, you know, it is one of those things where hey, I'm glad it's really good to get this out there, and and hopefully the folks that are in charge of uh, those middle boxes uh, are able to implement those the types of changes that they need. It seems, you're right, and it seems like it'd be pretty simple configuration fixes to uh, at least make this a lot trickier to implement on the adversary side. Um, I mean, for me, I'm probably looking at this as like two and a half hoodies, like two, a full, two full hoodies. Uh, and then like, I'd say just the sleeve parts to make a half, kind of a half, <laughs> just a half hoodie. I'm waiting for the summer where you do like two half midriff hoodies. That mean yeah. one full hoodie plus, uh, maybe one sleeve, um, you know, I, I think there's some additional room for interpretation there based on the way that you phrased that. Yeah, if we can, if I can get into dot com this summer for Splunk and get a bunch of Splunk hoodies, maybe we'll kind of make oh a, my gosh. a hoodie gallery. A hoodie gallery that will be in our museum. Yeah, perfect. Of course, yes. We'll put some um, next to the peoplekins on it next to the NFTs. <laughs> awesome. And Tim, what do you think? Yeah, I was in a pretty similar place. I was going to say three uh, hoodies. I I think. Without knowing that the thing that I mentioned in my last answer there, without knowing more about which boxes, which middle boxes and how popular they are uh, that are likely to be susceptible to this versus the ones that are not, it's a little hard to know because that um, that would tell you a lot about the reach of these potential DDoS attempts. DDoS, I generally feel like is, you know, not as critical as some of the... Uh, other kinds of exploits and, uh, you know, RCE type exploits and whatnot. Um, so put me down for three. You know, yeah, like I'm with you. I think yeah, maybe I'll go up to three. Maybe we'll cut the half hoodie. <laughs> this, that is a lot of amplification. And I think as we're 
in the world today looking at if you can bring down the right thing at the right time um that's incredibly powerful so yeah i think you're right Tim. wow look at all of us learning from one another today it's so nice such a good such a good team <laughs> awesome well let's end with our game two truths and a lie and if this is the first time you're tuning in um, or you missed a critical part of your childhood. Um, there's this game we play called Two Truths and a Lie, um, usually used as awkward icebreakers in the real world. Um, somebody provides two truths and, and one lie, and people try to guess. Instead of talking about ourselves, we do that with article titles from uh, the last few weeks in the security news space. So one co-host, this week it's Tim, We'll be serving Taylor and I his three articles, and then we'll do our best to see which one is a lie. I mean, right after, you know, just talking about how nice it is that we're learning from each other and whatnot. Now I'm going to lie to you all. I feel sort of bad, but not that bad. Ha! Okay. <laughs> three statements coming up, uh, and one of these may or may not have so much truthiness to it. So... Uh, statement number one, it's not just domains. Ukraine supporting scam apps have flooded the Android app store. Statement number two, a new Linux kernel vulnerability allows for container escape. And statement number three, Microsoft fixes a critical Azure bug that exposed customer data. Hmm. Interesting. I feel like I read somewhere about the Azure bug fix. So I think that is a truth. Um, I would not be surprised if there were apps that were being spun up. Just I was just going to say, it was so, I, I don't know. It was so nice just listening to your thought process kind of unfolding there. It was uh, a little bit mesmerized. By it. But anyway, <laughs> yes, the first statement was it's not just domains. Ukraine supporting scam apps have flooded Android App Store. Gotcha. Yes. Um, I think the second thing is a lie. I unfortunately believe that that first thing is true. I'm with you, Kelsey. Uh, that second one. Can you read the second one, Tim? No. No. I just, you don't get a second <laughs> chance. <laughs> Tim, are you okay? All right. No. Well, uh, the fact <laughs> is, <laughs> I was waiting to see if anybody wanted to revise their answer. The first one was a lie. I have not seen any evidence of Ukraine scam apps oh. out there. They There probably are some, but I'm not seeing the stories about them. I'm seeing the stories about the sites, domains. That's, so Tim, you just reined in two, two oh, of the points. You just made a fool of Taylor and myself. Oh, and now I'm falling even further. Except I feel sort of bad because... Uh, <laughs> Because probably there are indeed scammy apps. I just haven't well, seen it. Well, the second one is like, isn't it just there's a bug in the Linux kernel that allows for container? But it's just called the Linux kernel. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, right. <laughs> Man. Yeah, I was... I know there's been a lot of news about people using apps for good. Specifically, I mean, I, I don't know if people think about this as an app, but Airbnb, right, as a way to, um, to support um, Ukrainian people. Um, Etsy. So for for as of now, and Etsy, good point, yep. Taylor. We're only hearing about apps being used for good. Yeah, it's um sad to say that they'll get they'll get abused at some point or another. Maybe already are. I I mean, remember COVID lock? That was supposedly doing a good thing in the world, right? Not. 
Psych. Yep. It was locking down COVID and it totally worked. <laughs> yeah. Totally Just worked. should have used Just it sooner. Time. You know, what were we thinking? <laughs> yeah. I won't be shocked if we see that next week or the week after, but for now, we will try to sleep soundly. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's all we have for this week. I want to thank everybody for joining us. I'm sure we'll be continuing to cover the news over in Ukraine and beyond here in weeks to come. Um, don't hesitate. If you have any questions that you would like for us to cover the podcast, you can just at any of us on Twitter, reply to um, the tweet that goes out at, at 9 Pacific every Wednesday with our new episode. But we will be back next week for our 114th episode of Breaking Badness. Goodbye, y'all. Goodbye. Stay safe out there. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter, at Domain Tools. All of the articles and IOCs mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at domaintools.com slash resources slash podcasts. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. We'll see you next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click. Click.